Hello and welcome to H2 Orthopedics. My name is Mike Begg. I'm a certified physician assistant, a certified athletic trainer. I have a doctorate degree in medical science and over 30 years of experience in sports medicine, orthopedics, and medical education. My goal is to take your orthopedic diagnosis or injury and help you make sense of it. Welcome to H2 Orthopedics. Today's topic is going to be hip arthroplasty, hip replacement. And this is a uh, topic that, that was a request uh, through our website uh, from a gentleman named Paul. Uh, and Paul writes, he says, Mike, hey, just curious. Uh, I came back from uh, a, a family dinner, holiday dinner, um, and I was talking to my, my brother-in-law. And he said that, um, he said he, he saw me walking a little differently. He said, yeah, my back's bugging me again. It's been bugging me for a couple months now. It comes back and it's off and on, but it's been worse for the last six or so months. Uh, but definitely it's been giving me some, some trouble. I think I need to go in and see someone. And he, he said, this guy's brother-in-law, Paul's brother-in-law said, you might want to look at your hip joint. It looks like, uh, or sounds like you're having the same problems I had. And when I went in, it wasn't my back necessarily, uh, but it was a hip problem and they replaced my hip and I feel great. So Paul's question is, does this make any sense to you at all? And if it does, can you explain to me? So that is our topic. And uh, I don't know what's going on with Paul, but I'm going to kind of imply a little bit about his brother-in-law and maybe be able to put some of this uh, to Paul's situation, but uh, hopefully, you know, help help you as well if you have some hip or back issues and you just can't figure out what's going on there. So today's topic is hip replacement or hip arthroplasty. So let's dive in. So we talk about the, the hip joint. So the femur, your thigh bone, uh, makes up the bottom half or part of your hip joint. And I always kind of give the, the demonstration that put your arm, you know, bend your elbow at the wrist, put your shoulder, you know, straight out so your, your, your top of your arm is parallel to the ground and your fist pointing towards the sky. Make a fist and then just cock your wrist a little bit, you know, 45 degrees or so. And then your fist is going to be what we call the femoral head or the ball part of the ball and socket for your hip joint. Your hand going down to your wrist is going to be what we call the neck. And then from your wrist to your elbow, let's say, would be your femur going from uh, from top to bottom. And the bottom would be the top part of your knee joint. So that's half the joint. That's your femur. And then your pelvis makes the socket. Uh, it's a ball and socket joint so that your fist would fit into this socket, which is a deeper socket than, say, the shoulder joint. The shoulder has a relatively flat socket. Same type of joint, what we would term a ball and socket. Uh, but the hip is a deeper socket so that your fist fits deeper inside this. The uh, the end result of that is you have less motion at your hip than, say, at your shoulder. You can't, you know, you can kind of windmill your shoulder around. You certainly can't do that with your leg. Um, and part of that reason or a big portion of that reason is just the makeup of the joint being a, a tighter ball, uh, excuse me, a tighter socket around that ball. So that's the that's the bony architecture of the hip joint. Around that socket, just like in your shoulder, there's a labrum or a rim of cartilage that kind of makes that socket a little bit deeper and helps kind of seal things off. And then there's a capsule, a ligament <clears throat> sac. Uh, it goes all the way around the hip joint. In the shoulder, the top of that is the rotator cuff muscles or their tendons. In the hip, it's really, the whole thing is basically a, a, a ligament sac. And inside that sac are, is some fluid. Where those two bones come together, the femoral head and the what we call the acetabulum or the socket side of things, uh, where those two come together, they're coated with this shiny articular cartilage. 
And if you've listened to any of the other talks, we've talked about this cartilage. Um, it looks and feels like the inside of a seashell when it's healthy, nice and smooth, low friction. The ball and the, and the socket, femoral head and acetabulum, when they rub together as you're walking and moving around throughout life, uh, there's very low friction. The fluid inside the joint helps lubricate that. And, and when it's healthy, when that cartilage is healthy, you know, all's good. When that cartilage wears out, just in a general sense, from just normal wear and tear, that's arthritis. That's the arthritic process. You can have other things that lead to that arthritic process, such as an injury, a labral tear, um, something called avascular necrosis, where blood supply to the, to the ball itself is compromised. A hip dislocation may do that. So a trauma may lead to uh, arthritis, um, autoimmune things, rheumatoid arthritis, those type of things. Um, infections can, can definitely damage that cartilage coating. But uh, the bottom line is when you lose that cartilage, and we'll just talk about the kind of common wear and tear osteoarthritis, when that cartilage wears away from normal wear and tear, um, and now those bones are no longer coated with that cartilage, uh, and they're rubbing together, you know, I'm sure many of you have heard the term bone on bone, that's exactly what it is, uh, that's arthritis. And there's a process, a grading uh, or a um, thinning of that cartilage, and we would grade that based on x-ray findings, how narrow the space is between those two bones. On x-ray, that cartilage doesn't show up on x-ray. It looks like an open space or air. Uh, as it wears away, that space gets smaller and smaller. Those bones look as though they're growing closer together, which they truly are, uh, because that cartilage is no longer there. And we can grade you know, how severe your arthritis is. Bone spurs will form. There's different ways to grade that. But uh, overall, again, loss of joint space, loss of cartilage, loss of cartilage equals arthritis. Once you lose the cartilage, you also, for a couple of reasons, tend to lose motion in that joint. So uh, the bone spurs, for instance, I talked about, will grow around the ball, so it's, it may be misshapen, so it no longer fits in that socket well, and maybe the socket is misshapen. Sometimes there'll be a big spur that forms over the top of the socket or around the, around the rim of the socket, so now that ball can't move as far as the neck. Again, back to that, that analogy using your forearm and your hand, your hand is the neck. It bangs into the socket sooner than it should in, in different ranges of motion, and you lose the ability to move. So uh, a lot of times patients will come in, and if they're complaining of hip pain or back pain, a pretty simple way to see before you ask, just look down and if, if they have shoes with laces, you can see where their lace, where that knot in their shoe, where that bow in their shoe, where they tied it, where it is in reference to their foot. You know, most of us can bend down and tie our shoes, and that, that bow or that knot will be central, be right in the middle. Um, typically for these patients, it's not, it's, it's, it's on the inside usually, uh, because they, they can't really move their hip well enough and they just to get down there, uh, to get in that position, they kind of have to modify the position of their hip. And oftentimes that knot is off balance. It's either inside or outside, but, uh, just a little clue that we look at in the office to gain some information, watching you walk. So getting, getting the patient from the waiting room back to the exam room is valuable information. We can just see how you're moving. And again, this is maybe where, where Paul's son or a brother-in-law jumped in and said, look, you're moving funny. Uh, he thinks it's his back, but maybe he's walking funny. He has this kind of limited range of motion of his hip, which means he has to move his, his upper body differently, or maybe he has to rotate his leg in a position, usually kind of toes out or what we would call a duck footed position, external rotation, uh, to just to get the motion, to stay away from pain, but also to, to, there's a better range of that ball moving in that socket in that position. 
So there are subtle findings that you can kind of look at. And sure enough, hip pain can cause back pain. No question about it. The mechanical changes and the demands that are now placed on the back that are not normal can cause pain. We often will see patients with hip problems with knee pain. They come in, you know, on the schedule, it says, you know, 72-year-old, you know, gentleman with knee pain and his knee's not bad. It's his hip that's bad, but it, but because of his hip, he's walking differently and now he has knee pain. It's a hip problem. So not always the case, but we have to consider that. So we look into it. So again, the normal anatomy, the, the ball and socket, that femoral head fits inside the acetabulum, the ball in the socket. There's a rim of cartilage called the labrum that goes around that socket, uh, kind of helps seal that joint a little bit, keeps there's fluid in there to lubricate it. When that cartilage, it coats the bones are healthy, very low friction, uh, and typically very low pain or inflammation. When that cartilage wears off or is injured or damaged and then wears off, it's, arth- it's called the arthritic process. We can grade that on x-ray. Uh, usually don't need an MRI. If you're thinking labral tear instead of arthritic change, x-rays kind of give us a, a direction there, then an MRI would be helpful. But for arthritis, an x-ray is all you need. Um, we can I- identify it. We can identify how aggressive it is by the level of uh, bone spurs that are present, by the lack of joint space that we see on x-ray. We can really get a pretty good idea uh, what's going on there. So that's how we kind of you know, come up with the diagnosis. That's the normal anatomy and the injured anatomy, loss of cartilage. Um, x-rays are a big part of the exam. Um, range of motion is a big part as well. So oftentimes patients will be asked to lay on their back on the on the exam table and will flex the knee up to say 90 degrees, bring the knee so it's pointing straight towards the sky. Some patients have a lot of pain with that. And the pain in your hip joint, the ball and socket joint, is in your groin. So if a patient is standing, I'll say, you know, show me where your pain is. And it's almost where the, your fingertips would be. If you're just kind of standing, I always picture kind of a, a farmer or rancher standing out in their field, chewing on a piece of hay. And they put their hand in their pocket, thumb still sticking out, but their fingers are straight in their pocket. About your fingertips is about where the joint is. So it's in that area. You can have kind of buttock pain, um, deep buttock pain. But typically, it's that, it's that spot in the groin in the front where patients will complain of pain with hip arthritis. So again, lay them down on the back. If they can bring their knee up to 90 degrees, that's great. Sometimes they can't. But almost always when they bring their, their knee up towards their chest or towards straight up towards the sky, the foot will rotate inward. It's the hip that's rotating, but you'll watch the foot, and it's what we call internal rotation. It's, it's actually femoral the femur external rotation, but the foot goes in towards the midline because that range of motion is compromised. And then when we test the range of motion, ideally we could get the foot straight in line with the body. That would be neutral. Ideally we can rotate the foot outward, rotating the femur inward. Don't worry about that if you can't picture it, but rotating the foot outward, we should be able to go 15, 20 degrees, depending on the patient, their makeup, their size, their age. Uh, but we should be able to get it, you know, a few degrees out. Um, in an arthritic joint, sometimes we can't even get neutral. Uh, we can internally rotate the foot or externally rotate the femur um, quite well, usually, you know, 35, 45 degrees. Um, that's an easier position for them to be in. But that external rotation is almost always compromised in that hip that's arthritic. So that to me is one of the key findings. Does it hurt in the groin where your fingertips are when your hand's in your pocket like the farmer out in the field? Do you have difficulty bending over to tie your shoes <coughs> and lying on your back? Do you have limited range of motion, which really makes your foot drift inwards as you pull your knee towards your chest? And I can't re- usually get it past that neutral position. If we check all those boxes and we get an x-ray that shows that joint space is narrow, you have arthritis. 
So do you need an arthroplasty? Do you need a joint replacement? No. It will likely help you with your symptoms, but needing it uh, is, is kind of the answer that you have to come up with based on your symptoms and limitations of the problem. If the choice is to go to the operating room, I'll just say it's a great surgery. Patients are very happy afterwards. Um, most patients will compare a hip replacement to a knee replacement. In my experience, um, probably, I don't know, say several thousand or high hundreds, if not thousands, of patients that have gone through both of these procedures over the 30 years that have been doing this, I would say hip patients tend to recover a little quicker, a little easier uh, currently. In the past, it was a little bit different, but there's new techniques, and they're, they're really quite happy uh, once we get things kind of moving. Um, there are a couple different approaches. The newer way to approach the hip joint is what we call, I'll just use a term, there's modifications to this, but an anterior approach, where the incision is actually in the front of the hip versus back in the, in the buttock region um, where it used to be. And again, some surgeons still do a posterior, posterior lateral approach. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the anterior approach is uh, definitely more common these days in the last, say, 10, 15 years, becoming much more common. And there's some benefit to it. Uh, basically, we need to replace the ball and the socket uh, with metal and plastic. So uh, the anterior approach, incision towards the front of the leg, there's a kind of a natural void between a couple muscles that we can kind of follow. We don't have to release any muscles to get down to the capsule, that ligament sac that goes around the joint. We have to open that, obviously. And then typically on a special bed, a special operating room bed, uh, we can manipulate your leg, put traction, rotate, uh, extend, meaning dropping the leg back um, or moving it around in different positions where we can present the different parts of the joint that are needed to be replaced uh, through a relatively small incision. Um, again, the ball is removed. There is a metal shaft that is placed down the femur. So there's a metal uh, piece, uh, depending on the technique or the, the company or whatnot, I'm going to say four or five inches long, maybe goes down the center of the bone. On the top of that is a, what we call the neck or a post and the ball, which eventually will be made out of either a stainless steel, a ceramic, there's different materials that can be used. Um, and it kind of comes back to surgeon preference and what they believe is right for the patient and uh, trying to decrease wear factors, but uh, they'll put a ball on the, on the stem there. Uh, they always build a, a total joint kind of with uh, kind of hybrid pieces. You know, these different pieces work together. And eventually, once we're done, we'll, we'll go back and say, right, we need this size stem. We need this size ball. We need this angle of neck on our stem. We need this size uh, socket or acetabulum. So the acetabular, the socket side, we go in and kind of clean up the bone spurs, uh, take a special type of a, of a, a reamer, we call it, where it looks like a cheese grater to be uh, lack of a better term, that's what it looks like. And we kind of clean off any of the cartilage that's left and kind of clean up the bone, make a nice bleeding, healing surface. And then there's a metal cup that's placed into your socket. And then in that metal cup is a, again, plastic or ceramic or different materials, usually plastic these days, a liner that pops in there that corresponds to the ball on the other side of the joint. Those two are going to fit together. So let's just say ceramic on plastic or uh, stainless on metal and plastic, uh, doesn't different combinations again. Um, but the idea is those are going to now make your joint. That's going those ball, that ball and socket are going to be smaller than your native 
ball and socket. And therefore, uh, there may be some biomechanical changes, maybe a little instability. So we try to balance that and get as near normal as we can, knowing that we're, you know, we're trying to have wear factors. So we have to have a thicker plastic and, you know, a bigger head and all these come into play when the surgeon's prepping for this. But uh, again, the surgeon will plan for this uh, with your initial x-ray and sometimes they'll send it off to an engineer uh, if they have one for the specific company or the components that they use uh, for planning and making sure this is the right fit for you. In the end, we've replaced the socket and we've replaced the ball. And again, in this anterior approach, we just let things kind of, we would repair that capsule back. Some guys actually don't, but uh, in my experience, repairing that capsule back to give some stability, those muscles that we kind of separated just kind of fall back into place. Sometimes a stitch or two to get them to kind of stay where they need to be. Close up the skin and you're done. And away you go to the recovery room. In the posterior approach, or say the older type of approach, you would be laying on your side with the surgical side up and with more of a, more of an incision towards the rear end. So towards the buttock, um, they go in and they have to release a couple tendons to get into the joint. Again, not a bad thing, different approach with the anterior approach, different anatomy. Um, same general idea. Once you're at the joint, we're going to do everything the same. Um, it's just a different, a different way to go about it. And that's the way it started way back when, uh, that's the, the original approach and some, some docs still feel like it's the better approach. Um, but again, ball and socket are replaced. Um, so stem with the neck on it at a certain angle to match your anatomy, certain size ball, the socket side with the cup and the liner, and then we're done. We have to repair those tendons back and that, that adds a little bit to the recovery and a little bit to the risk post-operatively. We'll talk about in a second, but again, the surgical procedures, the approaches are different. The end result is the same. Um, patient will go to the recovery room. So a lot of patients these days are going home the same day. So what we would call outpatient procedure. So it's a surgery center. You stay in the recovery room for you know a couple hours. A physical therapist comes and sees you, teaches crutches. Um, some doctors will allow full weight bearing. A lot of doctors will kind of recommend a partial weight bearing or a you know a toe touch weight bearing for a couple of days to get the musculature back. Um, the pieces are either press fit or cemented in place. Press fit meaning they're coated with the material. Uh, that, that your body will actually grow into on that, on the acetabulum, that inner metal plate, or excuse me, inner metal cup, uh, oftentimes will be held in place with a couple screws to give it help, you know, give it support for the fixation, uh, on the femoral side, that rod or that stem, uh, can be cemented, but again, typically is press fit and is coated with the material your body will grow into. There's a surface area. Uh, if you look at it, you know, under a microscope, it's kind of honeycombed, if you will, kind of in your body will kind of grow into that to make it stable. So some doctors are a little more aggressive. They let you bear weight and move around right away. Others want to protect it for the first, you know, two to six weeks as that body is kind of stabilizing and growing into those components. Um, your range of motion is key to get your, get your function back because you've lost motion preoperatively. Oftentimes that's the biggest challenge. So we have to fill the bucket that was, um, that was empty preoperatively in the post-operative recovery. But again, that's what physical therapy does. Theoretically, and I would say this, that in my experience, this is supported, the posterior approach has more concern about dislocation or instability because of the musculature, the compromise of the musculature, uh, the insult of the approach versus the anterior approach. Anterior approach, without a doubt, you, I have seen anterior approach hips dislocate postoperatively and dislocation is a big concern. Um, because of the anatomy changes, the ball and socket are not matched uh, like your normal anatomy. That socket isn't as deep 
and therefore it's not as stable. So it's possible that you can dislocate your hip uh, with either approach, but because of the anatomy that's insulted during the procedure and during the approach, the anterior approach seems to be a little safer in regards to dislocations. Again, that's just uh, part of the benefit of doing it that way, theoretically. Um, but again, follow your surgeon and their recommendations, but ask questions about it. And that's a good question to ask. What technique to use? Is it an anterior approach? Is it a posterior approach? Is it a posterior lateral approach? All that means is where are they going and what soft tissue do they have to work through to get to the joint? And then think backwards, right? What does that mean postoperatively or recovery? Uh, does that, you know, compromise my stability? Does it compromise my activity? Does it compromise anything or not? Is it, is, is it not a big deal? And, and have an educated uh, discussion at kind of a higher level with your surgeon, and they should be happy to talk to you about that. Uh, anyway, that's that's the hip replacement. It's a pretty simple surgery, and most patients, honestly, you know, that first six weeks, you're kind of recovering, you're getting back to, to putting weight on your leg. If you were limited, um, you begin to move around uh, from six to say twelve weeks, so three months in. Most patients that I've been involved with are super happy. They come into that three month visit, and they are we get an X ray, we show them the components or where they need to be. And there's a lot of there's a lot of math and geometry and, and physics and different things that go into the placement of these parts that I didn't dive into, um, but we that's, we check for that with these X-rays. We check for that in the surgery, uh, but uh, everything stays where it's supposed to. Um, by three months, man, patients are super happy. Uh, they're out doing activities. They're walking. They're biking. They may be golfing, at least chipping and putting. Um, they may be you know do, they're doing a lot, and then they just take off. They're super happy. And away they go. So that's the hip replacement. But again, it comes back to to Paul talking to his, his brother-in-law. You know, his hip joint certainly can impact the, the mechanics of his moving throughout the day. It can give back pain. It can give knee pain. Uh, it can get, just give limitations of motion. Typically, you feel that pain in your groin um, where the joint is. And then, you know, if we kind of go through that workup process with x-rays and physical exam and listening to your story and your history, it's a pretty simple diagnosis. And then it's up to you. If, if the symptoms are bad enough, you want to go through a surgical procedure, which is a big procedure. It's a, it's a major surgery. Um, you know, those body parts don't come back. You end up living the rest of your life with metal and plastic where you used to have bone and cartilage. Uh, but if that cartilage is worn out, you probably are, are in less pain. Um, it's a big procedure, but it's a good one. And a lot of patients are super happy uh, once they get through that initial recovery phase. So hopefully that answers your question, Paul. I don't know what's going on with you. You may indeed have back problems, uh, but check it out. You may, you know, your brother-in-law may be right for once. He may, he may be uh, leading you in the right direction. I love my brother-in-law, so I, I don't know why I joke about them. It's uh, just a stereotypical brother-in-law joke, I guess. Anyway, check it out. Go in and see somebody, Paul. Get your x-rays. They'll see it on x-ray. You'll see it on x-ray. You know what you're looking for now. You'll see that ball coming in, into that socket. If there's no space, which means there's no dark line in there, then that cartilage is likely worn off. You'll see the bone spurs. Uh, you'll see the differences in shape. And hopefully the, the whoever you see, your provider, will give you an education on what it should look like, what it does look like, and then the options that you have moving forward. You can try a non-operative course of physical therapy. We do some injections, but that joint is less um, less available, I'll say, for injections. It seems to be a little bit less positive with the outcome. So not as many injections in the hip as we do in the knee for arthritis and trying to limp through the final, you know, final bit leading to a surgery. Um, but it's an option. Uh, but again, if you get to that surgical procedure, talk to them about the different approaches, make an educated decision. And, and then go into that procedure being optimistic and, and hopeful that the problem is going to be solved because, you know, nine times out of 10, it's a, it's a great procedure and patients do really well. 
uh, I don't want to say easy, but a relatively straightforward type of recovery. And the next thing you know, you're three, four months after the surgery, you're, you're out there doing everything you want to do. And not only does your hip feel better, your knee and your back might also feel better. So that's the, that's the, the added benefit. So, all right, that's it. Like always, do your best to stay active. Stay healthy and put a smile on someone else's face. I will talk to you later. Hey, it's Mike here. I hope this episode's helping you out and answering some questions. If I'm not hitting every topic right on for you, if there's something specific that you have about your injury uh, or you want to discuss unique findings on the exam or your history, your MRI, your x-rays, whatever it might be, head to our website at h2orthopedics.com and scroll to the bottom for an opportunity to sign up for a virtual visit where we can either have a Zoom call, we can do a telephone call, whatever it might be, and we can discuss the specifics of your injury in more detail and hopefully get the answer you're looking for. Again, that's h2orthopedics.com. Scroll to the bottom for the virtual visit, and I will talk to you next time.